<clears throat> Your kids <laughs> definitely have a reputation, and our ladies have a reputation. And honestly, I love it. I think it's great. Um, I, I love the fact that no matter what we're doing, we have a good time. We really do. And so, um, anyway, I, I'm glad the ladies got to go. Glad my wife got to go. Glad her attitude changed. Um, <clears throat> I've, it's been noticeable. But no, anyway, it, it is good. But um, Jude chapter 1, we're going to start verse 12 and uh, go through verse 16, I hope. And um, I, I hope you find this as interesting as I did. And uh, so anyway, starting in verse 12, talking about these false teachers who have crept in unawares, Jude says, these are spots in your feasts of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. And Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which, deeds which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches which, they, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. I hope you really picked up on that main word in verse uh, 15. I mean, it sounds redundant, but... Oh, I didn't turn on my mic. This mic's on. I could hear myself in the speaker. Sorry, guys. Are we good now? Good. Are we good? Is that money? Is that good? There we are. Awesome. In verse 15, Jude is really pushing the fact that these guys are ungodly. I mean, four times. He talks about their deed, he talks about them, he talks about their deeds, he talks about how they committed their deeds, and then he talks about their speech. They are ungodly. There isn't a righteous thing about these guys. And then verse 16, he says this, these are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and with their mouths speaking, speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. The first thing I want you to look at tonight is in verses 12 and 13, and it's the examples in nature. The examples in nature. Uh, Jude takes some some things that we deal with probably every day, things that we're familiar with, and uses them as illustrations concerning these false teachers. And the first one is in verse 12. These are spots. These are spots. And these are what I call guys that are, fear, they are fearlessly destructive. They are fearlessly destructive. The word spots, when I first looked at it, I thought it was gonna mean like, like a sore or like a cancer. But that's not what it means at all. The word spot is literally a rock in the ocean. It is a reef. It is a cliff. It is where we would put a lighthouse to send out a beacon, a warning to say, hey, don't come this way. The harbor is this way because there's danger here. So literally, Jude is saying these guys are rocks. Rocks. They are, tr they are out there for you to dash your life against to break up the, the ship of your life to sink you, to sink you. And so he says these guys are spots. They are rocks in the sea of life, and they are trying to crash, trying to wreck you. And notice what they do. When they feast with you, um, in your, there are spots in your feast of charity. When they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. And so 
Um, this is the only spot in the New Testament that these that this uh, feast, this feast of charity, is talked about. But they say that more than likely in the New Testament they had what they called love feasts, and it was a time of charity when they would get together and they would eat like we do all the time. So when somebody makes fun of potlucks and dinners after church, it's biblical, okay? It really is. Um, this was a time of fellowship. This was a time when they would eat together and they would feast together and they would just fellowship and they were together. Well, these guys, these spots were crept in and they were a part of those and they were false teaching. They were spreading discontent. Um, in verse 16, he calls them murmurers and complainers. I mean, these guys were destructive but notice what it says, without fear. They had no inclination, they had no fear of being caught. It was almost an arrogance of like, ha ha, look what I'm getting away with. Ha ha, I'm gonna ruin this person's life. Ha ha, they don't even know what's going on. And that's how they're functioning. They are these rocks in the middle of these feasts, these fellowships, trying to ruin people's lives. So first, they're fearlessly destructive. But not only were they fearlessly destructive, but they were fruitless deceivers. They were fruitless deceivers. Notice it says in verse 12, clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. He calls them clouds without water. You know, clouds are interesting. Did you know that scientists estimate that one inch of rain in a square mile, so in a square mile, one inch of rain, they estimate that rain to be equal to 17.4 million gallons of water. 17 and a half million gallons of water for one inch of rain in a quarter mile. That's what they estimate. They also estimate that that water weighs about 143 million pounds in that one square mile, one inch in that square mile. That's amazing. Now, here in lovely Fort Morgan, Colorado, we know exactly what it's like to see storm clouds, possible rain clouds, just pass right on by. And we don't get a drop. We get forecasts all the time, oh, we're going to get rain, and we don't get a drop. We miss out on rain all the time. That's these guys. They come floating in and it looks like, man, we're gonna get something awesome. We're gonna get rain. We're gonna get something out of this. And you don't get anything. They're completely fruitless. They're clouds without water. But not only are they clouds without water, they don't produce anything, they don't give off anything, but notice they're also carried about of winds. I, 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 was thinking, I thought of um, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, that says that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. You see, when you're an immature Christian, it's easy to kind of fall for just a, any kind of lie or any kind of truth that somebody throws out there but hopefully as we grow as Christians, we begin to realize or recognize counterfeits or lies and false teaching, and we stand up for, against it. We take a stand for what is true. 
And so here, these guys are these clouds that are blown in. They're blown about every wind of doctrine. They carry no water. They bring nothing profitable. They're unfruitful. The next thing he says there is they're like trees whose fruit withereth. Without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Now listen, if you had a tree, my mom, um, well, even growing up, we had in our home in Arizona, we had an orange tree out back. We had a lemon tree. We had a grapefruit tree. I think now my mom has a lime tree, and I think my mom actually has a pomegranate tree now. And if you talk to my mom on the phone, she's always talking about her fruit trees. Oh, I got this today, and I got that today. And she loves, my mom loves her fruit trees. She loves them. I liked them growing up. We had Our pastor growing up, he had a grapefruit tree that was as tall as this building and would fill up like the front third of this. I mean, it was a massive grapefruit tree we built a tree house up in, in the middle of it and we would take this pole with this basket and these fingers on it and we'd reach up into that tree and pluck grapefruits like this i mean they were huge and we'd sit out there and we'd peel them and eat them he had a nectarine tree on the other side of his yard that was about half that size we'd sit on his cinder block wall and pick nectarines all day and eat those nectarines i like fruit and i love fruit trees i love fresh fruit but who likes a tree that doesn't produce fruit who wants to water, fertilize, and put time and effort into a tree and it produce absolutely nothing? Well, nobody wants to do that. Well, these guys are that kind of tree. They don't produce fruit. They are fruitless deceivers. They don't actually bring anything to fruition. And notice, not only are they fruitless, but he says they're without fruit, twice dead. In other words, they're just constantly dead. You might expect something, dead. Expect something, dead expect something nothing 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 so what do you do with it you pluck it up you get rid of it you try again you do something else you go somewhere else um in our yard at home at, at our house we have we have this evergreen bush thing in the front and from what i understand if you have an evergreen or like a, like a cedar tree or a pine tree or whatever i guess they put something into the soil that keeps grass from growing i guess that's true but under that bush, it's all dirt. And my wife hates it. My wife just doesn't like it. She thinks it's ugly. It takes up a large chunk of the front yard, and she's like, I just like it to go away. And I'm kind of like, yeah, but I don't want to dig up all those roots and everything because I have a feeling no grass is ever going to grow there. And I'd just rather leave the bush. So, you know, that's one of those things where I'm praying about her attitude. But, um, but anyway, um, but that's what these guys are like. They, they're fruitless. They don't produce anything. So, they're fearlessly destructive. They're fruitless deceivers. Next, notice verse 13. I thought this was kind of cool. Verse 13. Raging waves of the sea foaming out their own shame. Here, they're foaming deviants. So get this. How many of you have ever been to the ocean? To the beach? Now, have you seen sea foam? You know, you, you watch the water come up and you get that foam along the edge and all that. So they say that if you were to take a jar and get some seawater in it, put a lid on it, and shake it, that you would get foam at the top of that. And that foam, sea foam, is actually created because of all the algae and proteins and bacteria and creatures and microscopic organisms. All the stuff in that ocean water creates sea foam. But the thing is, is you can't see all of those little things in the water. You just see the results. You see sea foam. And they say you can actually tell a lot from 
seafoam. They say that depending on the beach, depending on the location, depending on where you are, they said sometimes seafoam can actually be dangerous or tell you that the water is dangerous. And it's also a healthy sign of the water. So, but what it is, though, is that seafoam is created by something that you can't see. So here, as these guys are raging waves of the sea, foaming out their shame. You see, these guys have something going on the inside that you can't see. But if you'll watch, you'll start to see the results of what's on the inside. You'll start to see it. It finally comes out. And what's really interesting, he says, foaming out their own shame. That word shame literally means something to be ashamed of. And the reality is this. We could all take a piece of paper and you could start writing down things that, that the world finds shameful, okay? This isn't just a Christian thing. Shame isn't just a Christian thing. Shame is a worldly thing. It's everywhere. Everybody has a shameful list or an idea of what would be shameful. Well, these guys are doing things that would be shameful if they actually came out and you knew that they were doing them. And so they are foaming deviants. they secretly doing things that they would be ashamed of. So they're fearlessly destructive, faultless deceivers, foaming deviants. And the last thing is they do have a future destruction. Notice what he says in verse 13. Stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Did you know that a star is literally a, I thought this was funny. I, I, I think God has a sense of humor right here. But talking about these false teachers, he calls them stars. And did you know that a star is nothing more than a luminous ball of gas? And you know what? Really, that's all these guys are. Nothing more than a giant ball of gas. They're nothing, but a, nothing more than a ball of hot air. That's all they are. Running around, running their mouth, taking advantage of people. That's what they are. But here he calls them stars, and a star is a luminous ball of gas. It's mostly made up of hydrogen and helium, hydrogen and helium, and it is, I didn't know this, but a star is literally held together by its own gravity. I thought that was kind of cool. But stars can die. Stars can actually die. And I read a bunch of stuff online, and I don't really get it about what happens when they die and how all that plays out, but they can actually run out of their own fuel, and they die. And here, God says, stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. When a star dies, it falls off into the blackness of space. And you know what? When these guys die, when they come to the end, they disappear. They're gone. They leave nothing of substance they leave nothing worth remembering. Remembering. They leave nothing that helps anybody. They don't improve anything or anybody. They just disappear. So he gives us these examples from nature. But then, secondly, starting in verse 14, he says, and Enoch also. Now we have Enoch's prophecy. So we have these examples in nature. Now we have Enoch's prophecy. He says, and Enoch also, the seventh from Adam, prophesied of these, saying, behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed, and of all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken, excuse me, against him. So now, I don't know, do we all know, do you know who Enoch was? Does everybody know who Enoch was? So Enoch, obviously, seventh from Adam, you can go for, to Genesis chapter 5, verses 22 through 24, and there you will see that the Bible tells us that Enoch was the dad of Methuselah. 
He ended up becoming the great-grandfather of Noah. But Enoch, it says, walked with God, and he was not, for the Lord took him. So Enoch, one of two men not to die. How it happened, I have no idea. We're not really given that information. I don't know what happened to Enoch. But he just, one day, just gone. Just gone. But in Hebrews chapter 11, take your Bibles, go over there, Hebrews 11, 5 and 6, I want you to see something about Enoch, something we do know about Enoch. Hebrews 11, verse 5. The Bible says, By faith Enoch was translated that he should not see death. And he was not found because God had translated him, for before his translation he had this testimony that he pleased God. So that's an interesting thing. He pleased God. But we quote verse 6 a lot of the time, but verse 6 is talking about Enoch. So he has the testimony at the end of verse 5 that he pleased God. How did he please God? Verse 6. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. If Enoch pleased God, then number one, Enoch lived by faith, but also Enoch went to God and believed that he is and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And if he believed that he was a rewarder of those that diligently seek him, then Enoch must have diligently sought the Lord. He had to have if he pleased God. So Enoch pleased God. What's really interesting is they say that there is a book of Enoch. And they, I, don't know, I don't know what's going on here in Jude. I don't know where this prophecy is because other than the book of Jude, this prophecy is not in Scripture. I don't know if it is in the book of, of Enoch and Jude had seen a copy of it and God used those two verses and inspired that part because the book of Enoch is not in our Bible. It's not a part of our canon of Scripture. So that was not preserved for us. That was not put in here. So obviously that was not necessarily inspired. But we do have these two verses concerning Enoch's prophecy, what he said would come. So what did he say would come? Behold, the Lord cometh with 10,000 of his saints to execute. That word execute means to make it happen. This is going to happen. Like it says in Hebrews, um, what is it, 927? And it is appointed unto men once to die. You have an appointment with death. You can't skip it. So God has an appointment. There is coming a time when he will execute judgment. It will happen. These guys are, will be judged, period. It's going to happen. So he says, to execute judgment upon all and to convince all. That word convince literally means to convict with shame. Listen, when God judges mankind, there will be no pride. There will be no defiance. There will be no argument. There will not be no standing there like you can't accuse me or who you are to talk to me. There will be none of that. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. It will be a time of humility. It will be a time of shame. There will be nobody that stands in the face of God. That will not happen. So here, God comes to to execute and to convince what? All that are ungodly. But not all that are just ungodly, 
but all that are ungodly among, uh, among them of all their ungodly deeds. So here you have ungodly people committing ungodly deeds, which they have ungodly committed. You have ungodly people committing ungodly deeds in an ungodly manner. What's the point? The point is these people are ungodly through and through. There isn't an ounce of righteousness. There isn't an ounce of godliness. There isn't an ounce of holiness inside these. They're just 100% dirty, rotten, ungodly people. That's what they are. That's what they are. And all their hard speeches, which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch prophesied of this judgment that was going to come, that God was going to execute, and he will convince men of their ungodly deeds. It will happen. So we have this prophecy by Enoch. Then the third thing I want you to think about is the end of complaining. Now, you say, what do you mean? I honestly think that we have a little, we have a little nugget here in verse 16. I think this is kind of cool. I like process. I like steps. I like it when you, know, you read your Bible and it's like, oh, you have this and then you have this and then this happened and this and you, and you can see all the progression and then you have, boom, a result. I like that kind of thing. I think that's what we have in the first part of verse 16. Here you find the end or the result of complaining. Verse 16, these, talking about these men, are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts. So I think what you have here is you have the result or the end of complaining. They start out as murmurers, then they're complainers, and then you find that they walk after their own lusts. Let me explain. The word murmur literally means a grumbling. It's a, ugh. You've done that. You've had your kids do that. You've seen people do that. You tell them something like, for example, tonight I told Wesley, hey, why don't you lead the music for church tonight? And he went, ugh. That's a murmur. That's murmuring. It is literally a guttural, it is just a natural, just sound. And you've done that and you've heard that. Complaining, though, complaining is a verbal complaint. It is voicing a complaint. I don't like that. I don't want that. That's not fair. Whatever it is, it is a verbal complaint. It is literally argumentative. It's argumentative. And then, then you have this walking after their own lusts. So here, here's, here's the thing. I believe that if we're not careful... We can start out murmuring where it's just a guttural kind of like, oh man, I dread that, but maybe we do it anyway. But if we're not careful, that can grow into a complaint where we will verbalize, yeah, you know what, I don't like that or whatever, and, and we'll actually verbalize it. And if we're not careful, that will continue to grow, and before you know it, we're walking after our own lusts. You say, okay, Pastor West, I don't really, okay, whatever. Well, let me say this. Let's say, or, okay, when I was a kid, I hated liver. I still hate liver. And I don't eat liver. I don't eat liver. My mom would make liver. No joke. My mom, bless her, um, every meal, milk. Every meal, milk. Then, every meal, green beans or peas. Every meal. We would have spaghetti. We would have lasagna. And next year, spaghetti or lasagna would be a pile of peas or a pile of green beans. Every meal. And you'd have a glass of milk. Every meal. I still don't get it. Now, I told my wife, don't ever do anything green with spaghetti or lasagna, unless it's that flaky stuff that you put on the top, you know, That's that, that basil or whatever it is. That, that stuff's great. But my mom, every meal, well, my mom would make liver. 
man, it's just gross. So my mom would make liver, and no joke, me and my brother would take liver, we would cut it up, and I'd take it like pills with my milk, and I'd just chug it down, and down it would go, just, just suck it up, suffer through it. But you know what, I'm sure when I was a kid, I probably murmured, ugh. And I'm sure there were verbal times when I was like, liver? Really, Mom, do I have to eat that? Can I have something else? But you know what that murmuring and that complaining has grown in today, to today? I walk after my own lust. I don't eat liver. I don't eat it. Don't bring it into my house. If you invite us over and you make liver, I'm not going to eat it. I'm just going to tell you. You can call me whatever you want. Maybe that makes me ungrateful or whatever, but just give me a heads up and I'll bring a hamburger okay, all right? I mean, it's just gross. And the truth is this. If we are not careful in the way we respond to things, that complaining, that murmuring grows. And the, the, the walking after their own lust, the word walk literally means to pursue. They are chasing after their cravings. They are, tra- they are pursuing after, they're chasing down their desires. That's what it means. And it all started with a murmur, a complaint, and now I live free, and I do whatever makes me happy, whatever makes me feel good. And it started with a murmur and a complaint. It started with a murmur and complaint. So don't take those things lightly. We try not to take those things lightly with our kids. Um, we're not perfect, but... Um, my mother-in-law has a thing that she says all the time, can't stand for no whining. And she says that all the time. I whine about her saying that. But anyway. Um, so this end of complaining. Complaining is a serious thing. Um, in 1 Corinthians 10, 10, um, Paul said, neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed by the destroyer. When the children of Israel complained and murmured, God destroyed them. There was judgment. Complaining is a serious issue with God. He doesn't take it lightly. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without murmurings and disputings. Even as a church, we should conduct our business without murmuring and without disputings, without complaining. So it's a serious thing with God, murmuring and complaining. And then the last thing is Their expression for personal gain. Notice the rest of verse 16. And their mouth speaketh great swelling words, having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. So this word speaketh means it's something they're constantly doing. They are constantly talking, and it's constant flattery. They are constantly speaking these swelling words. That word swelling words means to be exaggerated or to be excessive. Excessive. You've been, you, you know what I'm talking about. You've been flattered too. You've had somebody say something to you and your first thought was, what do they want? Right? You've been buttered up before, especially if you have kids. You know, mom, you really look amazing today. Yeah, what do you want? You know? Um, but you know, you've had that happen to you before. And, and that's what these guys do. They flatter They speak with swelling words. They are constantly talking, and their words are constantly over the top, excessive. 
And, and their words make you wonder, like, what is their motive? Or why are they saying what they're saying? Or why do they say it that way? And well, that just seems to be extreme. But they're constantly talking this way, always talking this way, having men's persons in admiration. The word men's persons is their faces. They hold, supposedly, your face in high regard. And they're not afraid to tell you. And they're not afraid to tell you how wonderful and how amazing you are. But notice their reason. Because of advantage. That word advantage literally means profit or personal gain. You know, the Bible talks about flattery. In uh, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 24, it says, To keep thee from the evil woman, from the flattery of the tongue of a strange woman. If you've never done a study on Proverbs 5, 6, and 7, I would encourage you to do that, especially you men. Do a study of Proverbs 5, 6, and 7 about the strange woman. The word flattery in the Old Testament literally means to be slippery. It's slippery. It's smooth. It's slimy. It's like you can't put your hand on it. I hate it when I talk to somebody and I can't really like pin them down. It's like they're all over the, all over the place and they're, they're kind of sneaky and you know, their words are here, then they're there, and you're kind of like, yeah, I don't really know what they mean. I can't stand that. I can't stand that. You can't trust a person like that. Um, in Proverbs 6, verse 28, it says, A lying tongue hateth those that are afflicted by it, and a flattering mouth worketh ruin. Ruin. In Psalm 12, verses 1 and 2, David said, Help, Lord, for the godly man ceaseth, for the faithful fail from among the children of men. They speak vanity, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips and with a double heart. Do they speak? Ezekiel 12, 24, I thought this was interesting, talking about the prophets. For there shall be no more, there shall be no more any vain vision or flattering divination within the house of Israel. In other words, the prophets were giving a prophecy that got them what they wanted. It got them where they wanted to get. It made the king happy, we're happy, we're all good. Flattery. These guys are flatterers. They talk excessively, they talk all the time, and they butter you up to get what they want. When my wife and I graduated college, we moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and we worked in church. And at one point in time, that church had an assistant who would make visits. And he'd go into somebody's house, and he'd sit down and he'd say, man, I really like that lamp. That's a beautiful lamp. That's a really nice lamp. And the family would say, oh, well, thank you. They'd leave. They'd make another visit. They'd sit down and they'd say, man, that is a beautiful lamp. That is just, that is just a really nice lamp. Well, thank you. Okay, they'd leave. They'd do that several times, and no joke, they would make a visit, sit down, and they'd go, that is a nice lamp. Can I have that lamp? What? And they would do that to people in the church. They would, they would make visits, and they would do that. Needless to say, they did not last very long. But um, they would do that to people. And I, I, man, and the pastor was telling me this, and the pastor was honestly, in some ways, and, and I get it, but he was kind of paranoid, and he didn't want me to make visits because of that. And I was kind of like, well, thanks for ruining for all of us. Okay, whatever. Fine, I won't make visits then. But um, anyway, it, it was just, it was a crazy situation. But um, 
I, 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 would, I, I, don't, I don't know that Pastor and I have ever talked about this. Um, but honestly, that's something that I'm probably somewhat paranoid about. Um, my wife and I have gone or worked in churches and gone to church with certain people that you did not tell them you liked something because they would buy it for you. And so we just wouldn't tell them. I mean, it would be like, oh man, that's really neat. Next thing you know, they bring it to you at church and you're kind of like, and so we, we just get to work, okay, just don't tell them you like anything. Because honestly, I don't want to be this guy. I don't want to be this guy. There's enough preachers, guys standing up, supposedly preaching this book, that that is their motive, to fleece people, to get what they can out of people. And that's awful. That's awful. And so these guys, that's what they do. That's what they use their speech for. They butter up to gain some form of an advantage, whether it be something, a position, some kind of authority, some kind of influence, whatever it might be, to affect God's people. To affect God's people. And so the truth is, is we need to be on guard. We need to be on guard when it comes to these types of preachers, Christians, whatever they might be, these false teachers, these guys that creep in unawares, we need to be on guard. We need to pay attention to people. And that brings us to verse 17. But, beloved. And in starting in verse 17, Jude is gonna tell us how to handle these false teachers, what to do. And it's kind of interesting what he tells us to do, and we'll look at that next time, but Anyway, these false teachers, these guys have crept in unawares. Their goal is to ruin and to take advantage of these believers. And ladies and gentlemen, we have them today. We have them today. We may not have one in our church right now, but you know what? We might have one next, month, next week. We might have one next month. We just need to be careful. You need to be careful. Be careful to what you listen to on the radio. Because the, the truth is, is not everybody's speaking the truth. They're not. So be on guard. Be careful. Um, my father-in-law was, was driving through Chicago, Illinois one time. My father-in-law is a hick, redneck, hillbilly. He'll tell you he's a hillbilly from North Carolina. My, gra- my, my father-in-law grew up in the hills of, of North Carolina, and he'll tell you he can remember when they brought electricity back into their valley, their holler. And um, so... That's my father-in-law. And my father-in-law is a nice guy. Traveling through Chicago, Illinois, stopped to get gas, filling the car up with gas. This guy pulls up on the other side of the pump, gets out to put gas. My father's like, hey, how you doing today? The guy looked at him, what do you want? You know, if I lived in Chicago, Illinois, I wouldn't trust anybody either. I wouldn't either. You know, sometimes the truth is, we kind of have to have that same attitude when it comes to our faith. When it comes to truth. Somebody starts talking and something sounds a little fishy. What do you want? We need to be on guard. We need to be careful. So anyway, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for truth. Thank you that we can know truth and we can trust it and we can depend on it. Lord, I pray you'd give us the faith, the strength, the courage to trust your word and to defend it. In your name we pray, amen.